Please open your Bibles to the sixth chapter of Mark. Hear the word of the Lord, beginning in verse 7. And he called the twelve and began to send them out, two by two, and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why the miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in the prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted him put to death. But she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was righteous and a holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. This ends the reading of God's word from the book of Mark. Good morning. The, the five to eight-year-olds can make their way out for their class. What a joy it is to come out on this snowy morning to consider God's word, to celebrate his presence as a family, as a people. If you're here as our guest this morning, we're so glad that you're with us and we want you just to experience our love and fellowship as we spend time together. Well, we love heroes. We love heroes, don't we? We, we love men and women who give their lives for a greater cause who focus their lives on something that's worthy. We love the Jack Bowers who saved the world from nuclear destruction. We love the Winston Churchills who lead the governments in a noble pursuit. We, we love men like Martin Luther King and John Glenn who in their respective areas make a difference being a man or woman on a mission focuses our lives. It removes the mundane. Never see a hero on television watching television. 
Think about that. Heroes are focused. They're doing important things. They're making a difference. They're living for something beyond their lives. They're living for something bigger than themselves. For a purpose that will outlive themselves. So I want us to consider this morning, what are you living for? What purpose, what mission do you have that's bigger than yourself? That causes you to lay aside the mundane? That focuses your priorities? That gives you a reason to say no to good things so that you can say yes to the best? What mission do you have? Well, if you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Christ, if you've turned from your sins and trusted in the Savior, if He is the center of your world, you have a mission. And this passage is a dramatic declaration of that mission. It's a call to arms. It's a call to live for something bigger than ourselves. What I want to consider this morning is that Jesus' followers participate in Jesus' mission. That's the claim of this passage on our lives. Jesus' followers participate in Jesus' mission. He called the twelve and he sent them out. That makes a, a claim on our lives. Now, If you've been following the Gospel of Mark as we've been studying it together, you'll realize that the first five chapters of Mark really were full of Jesus being on mission. Jesus was on mission, preaching, healing, delivering. Jesus was on mission. And the disciples were in tow. They were following along, trying to keep up with him, trying to figure out what was going on. They were doing what we would be doing, trying to figure out what's the big picture. But something dramatic happens, something unexpected happens as we begin this sixth chapter. These men who have been in tow are now sent out. The men who have been watching ministry are now doing ministry. It's a dramatic turn of events, but if we've been paying attention, it's not an unexpected one. In the third chapter, we, we read of the calling of the twelve. It says in Mark 3.13, He went up on the mountain and called to him those he desired, And they came to him and he appointed them. He appointed 12 whom he also named apostles or sent ones for these two reasons. So that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach. So you might be with them. He's creating a new community. It's relational. It's not academic It's relational. He called them to himself for this purpose, that they might be with him. That's why he calls us, how he calls us, that we might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach. It's a community, but not a community in itself, but a community with a mission. And the mission is that he would send them out to preach. So from the very beginning... When he called them, he's not calling them to simply follow him. He's calling them to be equipped so that they can go out and preach. Now, here in the sixth chapter, that happens. And it happens in a dramatic way. And it happens in a way that illustrates three things. Jesus' followers participate in Jesus' mission in these three ways. We share Jesus' authority... Verses 7 to 11. We share Jesus' ministry. Verses 12 and 13. And we share Jesus' suffering. Verses 14 to 29. We share Jesus' authority. We share Jesus' mission. 
we share Jesus' suffering. Look at verse 7 in this dramatic turn of events. He called the twelve and he began to send them out two by two and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Now, if if you've been following Mark, again, one of the themes that we're very aware of is the, the theme of authority. Remember in the very first chapter of Mark, they were all amazed hearing Jesus and they, they questioned among themselves, what is this, a new teaching with authority? So Jesus was altogether different than what they had experienced. This was a teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. So Jesus' ministry is marked by authority. In the second chapter, he, he says that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He says to the paralytic, pick up your bed and go home. And even the miracles that we see again and again and again through the Gospels are, are not an end of themselves. The, the miracles that Jesus performed weren't just to bless people and heal people. The primary reason for the miracles was to reveal Christ's authority so that people could see that this man was God, that this man was trustworthy, that they could place their faith in him as the authoritative Lord. That, that to place confidence in him was to, was to believe that this man was on this earth to conquer sin and death. And so here we see that this authority that Jesus has, that's been well established, is an authority he gives to us. And if you remember the Great Commission, that, that is the very heart of the commission that God uses to send us. At the very end of Matthew, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. See that claim of authority, the the absolute authority that is his, all authority. All authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples. See the connection? All authority is given to me, so now I send you. I have authority, I send you. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I've commanded you. And behold, behold, I am with you always. So I have authority, I send you, and as you go in my name, I go with you. That's, that's pretty amazing, isn't it? Now that's what he's talking about, that when he calls us to go and we obey, we're on mission. When he calls us to go and we obey, we share his authority. We have his authority. And as we go in his authority, he gives us three directives. Three directives how we're to go. First of all, he says he sends them out two by two. So, so the first thing he says is, when you go in mission to, for me, when you enter into my mission, when you participate in the mission that I've given you, you're sent in community. You're not a lone ranger. Remember we talked about at the beginning the heroes. The heroes are, are, are people typically that are lone rangers. They're out saving the world by themselves, but, but not so in the kingdom. There's something different, there's something distinct about the faith that Jesus calls us to walk in. It is always a corporate faith. It's always something we do in connection with God's people. God invests his heart, his, his authority in a people, not just a person. So he calls us to go. And, and, and that's so significant. Tonight... We'll have a members meeting. We're going to be receiving new members. It's one of the, my favorite parts of church life. Because the Bible says that when God births people into the kingdom, he adds the members to the body as he desires. 
He adds the members. That means that our, our identity as Christians isn't a solo identity. It's not just me and God. It's me and God and the people that he's added me to. He builds me into a wall as a living stone. He places people around me. And that definition of where he's called me and how he's called me and who he's called me with is one of the most important things about my life. It's my identity as a Christian. Now, sometimes people will ask me, why should I join a church? I've got everything I need. I can go to a meeting. And it's a good question. And it's a question that I hear a lot more now than I did 20 years ago. Because honestly, we live in a culture that's increasingly just kind of whatever serves me. And my answer isn't to tell them all the benefits of being a member, though there are benefits of being a member. But my answer is that, that we join the church as an acknowledgement of what God has done in my life because I am a Christian. Because he's set me apart, because he's purchased me, and he's called me to himself, and he's placed me in a body, my membership is not joining the church of my choice, but the church of his choice. And my acknowledgement of membership is simply an acknowledgement of what he's done. And so, so I join the church, not because of the benefits I accrue, but because of the benefits that that will give to him. Because it acknowledges what he has done. It creates a visible testimony. People can look and and it's not a person sitting on a hill, but a city on a hill. Because because God has called me to be fruitful in my service. and, and, And that service comes by being built up as a body. It's corporate. I can't live the Christian life fruitfully by myself. If you see an independent Christian, you'll see a fruitless Christian. Fruitful Christians are always in community. Because God's created me to need and benefit from loving leadership, caring leadership. And and I need to define that because because the the pastors are giving an account to those given to their charge. So God's glorified when I acknowledge those he has set over me in the Lord. Because he's called me to no longer live alone, being strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God. I don't know how your household works, but it's really helpful for us as a family to know who's in our family and who's not. Who's going to show up for dinner and who's not. We don't normally have people wandering in and off out of the street showing up and we really don't know who they are because, well, they don't really want to be officially part of our family, so they just show up. That's not how it works. When you're a household, you're a family, it's defined. So all of that to say Jesus sent them two by two. He sent them in community and, and one of the calls and claims of discipleship is that we acknowledge through our commitment to God's people the commitment we have to him. It's not in isolation. Membership is important. We're sent out as members of one another. The greatest motivation for being passionately committed to the church is that Jesus is passionately committed to the church. Secondly, he said he's, he sent them with dependence. This is a very interesting, verses 8 and 9 is a very interesting scripture. He charged them to take nothing for their journey. Now imagine this is you. You're going out on a journey, right? Don't take anything except a staff. No bread, no food, no bag, no extra clothes, no money, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. So in other words, Don't even be tempted to try to smuggle a second tunic in. What's he saying? I want you to be dependent on me as you go. I've called you to go and be dependent on me. Now, that's something that most of us aren't real comfortable with. If if God calls you to go, like he called Abraham, remember he calls Abram, he says, I want you to go to a country I'll show you. Okay, well, that's good, Lord. Where is the country? Well, I'll tell you when you get there. Well, what do I take with me? Just yourself. Just take yourself and go, and I'll tell you when you arrive. That Abram obeyed God 
And that was a mark of faith in his life. Now, here's the question we have to answer. Are we willing to do that? Because God may well call you to do something that requires great faith. Tonight we're going to hear a testimony from a family who's in the, just that position. What, what happens when he calls you to go? He says, by the way, you don't have enough money in the bank. It's okay. I'm going to take care of you. You, you don't have everything you're going to need. It's okay. I'm going to take care of you. You go. There's something, there's something amazing about this idea. We could summarize it this way. Travel light, depend on God. Travel light, focus on serving Christ, not keeping up with all your stuff. And depend on God. It's his mission. It's his authority. It calls for a single-minded focus and a wholehearted dependence because God will provide. I read this quote. It really helped me. True service of Jesus is characterized by dependence on Jesus. And dependence on Jesus is signified by going where Jesus sends despite material shortfalls and unanswered questions. They must trust him alone who sends them. Now, I just sense as I was preparing this that that was an important idea to plant in our hearts as a seed. Because I think God's going to call some of us to go and he's not always going to give us everything we need before we leave. And when that happens, remember that that's how he sent these men. Go, travel light, depend on me. Then the third thing he said, he said, you're going with eternal significance. Look at verse 10. Wherever, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart. So remember, they don't have any money, any possessions. Just go, and when someone invites you to stay with them, you stay. And when someone else with a bigger house says, why don't you come to my house? I have a whole suite you can have. It's private. You don't have any of the kids sleeping with you. Tell them, no, I'm going to stay in the first house because that's where God sent me. It's not about your comfort. It's about living among the people being dependent on them, being accountable, sharing life with them, living in community, being transparent, showing integrity. It's a life lived openly and independence. And if you're like me, that's an uncomfortable place to be. You'd like to be able to take a gift when you arrive. You'd like to be able to take them out for a meal while you're there. No, you're dependent. God's called you. But, look at verse 11. If any place will not receive you, they will not listen to you. When you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. Not only are you to live dependently, but if, if someone won't hear the message, then move on. Move on and shake the dust off of your feet. When a Jew would travel to another country, to a Gentile country, he would, when he returned, he would shake the dust off because it would be unclean. And that's a picture of what this is. But here's the significance. God's not asking us to judge people. He's asking us to trust him that if someone doesn't receive the message, if they reject the message, and that's different than rejecting our goofiness, okay? So we can be goofy. We can, there are a lot of reasons people can reject the message besides the message, if you're following me. And so we're not talking about us being offensive and people rejecting us, but the message. And if we're faithful to the message, some people are going to receive the message with great joy. That's the good soil. Some people are going to reject the message. That's the hard soil. And if they reject the message, Jesus says, listen, you're not there for your own popularity. It's not about you. This is good for us to remember. 
When you're at work and you share the gospel and somebody doesn't like it, it's not about you. And there's no guarantee that you're going to be popular by sharing the message of the gospel. Paul says it this way. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. Now, an ambassador is someone who doesn't preach his own message, doesn't declare his own message. An ambassador is one who brings the message of another. If you're an ambassador for the United States, when you speak on behalf of your government, you're not telling your opinion, but the opinion of the United States government. When we're Christ's ambassadors, we're we're not free to change the message. We're not free to candy coat it, to make it easier. We're not free to change it. We must deliver the message we're given. And sometimes that message is going to be popular. Sometimes that message is going to bear great fruit. When it does, don't get all puffed up. It's not about you. It's about the message. Don't talk about all of your exploits. It's the gospel bearing fruit, not you. Sometimes you're going to be rejected. And when you're rejected, well, get used to it. Because Jesus said, if they hate me, they're going to hate you too. And so when you do, then shake the dust off your feet. Realize that there are places that you're not going to be welcome. And that's part of sharing Jesus' ministry. Which the second part, we've been given his authority, we've been given these explicit commands, and now, secondly, we share Jesus' ministry. In verse 12, they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. This is a threefold echo of the work of Jesus. This is so significant. Let's don't miss this. Jesus came and he, he basically, in the first five chapters, did three things. He preached. Remember in chapter 1 that he's in Capernaum and everybody is so excited about Jesus. And, and so after a day of ministry, he gets up early and goes out in the wilderness to, to pray. The disciples are just beside themselves. There's all these people that want to hear Jesus, and they're excited about getting Jesus back out there, putting him on the platform. And they find Jesus, and they say, what are you doing? All these people are waiting for you. And Jesus says, I must go to the next towns. Let's go somewhere else then, that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. See, Jesus didn't come to draw a big crowd. He didn't come to reach the maximum number of people. He came to faithfully proclaim the gospel wherever the Father led him. That should be our passion as well. He came to preach the gospel. To preach there also. So that's what the disciples are doing. They're following his footsteps. We see in, in Mark 5, Jesus praying for the Gadarene demoniac to be delivered, a miraculous deliverance. And again, that's what the disciples are doing. They're casting out many demons. In the second chapter of Mark, we see him healing, healing the paralytic. I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. He heals. Jesus came to preach, to deliver, and to heal. Now, what are the disciples doing? They're preaching, they're delivering, and they're healing. It's it's the manifestation of the kingdom. It's the power of the age to come breaking into this present evil age. It's a sign that the ultimate sign is about to happen. Remember, Jesus hasn't completed what we know is the gospel. So it's a foreshadowing. It's a looking toward Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection where the power of sin is broken, where the power of sin is dismissed. It's, it's a testimony to these disciples that when they go out, and listen carefully to this, when they go out to do the work of the kingdom, It is Jesus' authority that goes with them. 
So remember what we said earlier from, from the Great Commission. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me, therefore go. So they go with his authority, which means that when they speak, it's as if Jesus is speaking. When they pray, it's as if Jesus is praying. And they're getting the same answers to prayer that Jesus did. In fact, remember John 14, he said, truly, truly, I say to you. In other words, listen up, think about this guy. This is important. Whoever believes in me, not just the 12, but you and me, whoever believes in me will do the works I do and greater works than these. Why? Because I'm going to the Father. What's that mean? Well, when Jesus goes to the Father, he sends the Spirit. When Jesus goes to the Father, he sends the Spirit. The Spirit comes and indwells God's people. He indwells God's people for many reasons, one of which is to empower us for works of service. So Jesus says, because the Spirit of God lives within you, when you go out on mission, the same authority that I have, you have. The same ministry I have, you have. You share in my authority. You share in my ministry. So when you pray for the sick, it's as if I'm praying for the sick. When you pray to cast out demons, it's as if I pray to cast out demons. When you proclaim the good news of the kingdom, it's as if I pray proclaim the good news of the kingdom. That's what that means. It's the mission that he's given us. It's just as if Christ... We're personally there. And brothers and sisters, this, this isn't just a sideline. This isn't just one of the many things about your life. This, this defines our life as what God has called us to be. It, it's an acknowledgement that we are weak, but he is strong. That he works through a, a weak people. We sang a few minutes ago, the strength to follow your commands could never come from me. Now, it's important that we realize this because sometimes Christians try to work up a strength. We can't work up a strength. We don't have a strength. We, you can't do the works of the kingdom. Forget it. But if God's living in us, if his spirit within us is anointing us, then he can do the works of the kingdom through us. And that's the key. The strength to follow his commands could never come from me. That's right. I agree with that. So that means my confidence isn't in me. If I get up and I'm having a good day, I don't feel better about my ability to preach the gospel. If I get up and I'm having a bad day, I don't feel worse. Because it's not about me. It's It's not me that's making it happen. It's God working through me. God's empowering me. That's that's the heart of mission. Brothers and sisters, God has called us to be a people of influence, a people that are changing our worlds. It's one of the reasons, one of the things we're going to talk about at the members meeting tonight is is an upcoming short-term mission trip to Bolivia. I'm very excited about that, and here's why. Last year when I went to Bolivia, I I was unprepared for the effect it would have on me. There is something about giving out of our comfort zone and being in a place of greater need, being in a place where, where we are absolutely, I mean, there were many times during that, those two weeks that Chris and I would be in a position where we would be asked to share something and I would have no preparation. And I would each and every time experience the power of God as we pray for people, as we prophesy over people, as we share. What, what's happening? Well, we're out of our comfort zone. We're being sent. That's one of the reasons that as much as it's within me, I, I want to convince every one of you to, to be a part of a short-term mission trip. Because that, that is, it's life-transforming to get out of your comfort zone and be in a place where you're absolutely dependent on God. And being a disciple 
is about giving out of our comfort zone. It's about trusting him. It's about being used by him. And when you come back from a time like that, you're aware that there's a mission field all around us that somehow we never saw. I want that for you. I want that for us. See, there's something about being on mission, and you can see it if you look, look at verse, look, look again at verse 12. They went out and proclaimed that people should repent. They cast out many demons. These are ordinary fishermen, right? They cast out many demons. They anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. And King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. How did Jesus' name become known? His name became known because mighty works of the kingdom were being done. And not just through the Savior, but through these disciples, through these 12 men that were following him around in the days. And suddenly they're thrust out and they're doing the works of the kingdom. That's what I want for every one of us. And if any of us would say, well, well, I couldn't do that. I would just say, you're right, you can't do it. Because, because the strength to follow your commands could never come from me. Neither can I. But he can. See, the whole point of being called, the whole point of being sent, is that it doesn't come from me. It comes from him. He empowers us. And so it's not about our greatness, it's about his greatness. It doesn't depend on me, it depends on him. It's his mission. And the question I want to ask you this morning is, what are you doing with that mission? What are you doing with it? How is your life different because he's called you? How is your perception of the world around you different because you've been sent? How is God using your weakness, his power through you, to change your world. This is the claim this makes upon our lives, brothers and sisters. We are Jesus' followers, and as such, we participate in Jesus' mission. We share his authority, we share his ministry. And then there's a third sharing that's, well, that's sobering. And quite honestly, this is the more difficult part to preach from this passage. There are seven verses about his authority and ministry and 16 verses about sharing his suffering. You think God's trying to tell us something? We know that this is part of this this picture that he's given us because Mark has this way of, of creating a sandwich. It's called a Mark and sandwich. He'll take, he'll take a story... And he'll split it in half like you might a piece of bread. And then he'll insert a story that seems at first completely detached, completely unrelated. Until you step back and ask the question, what is it he's trying to say to me? So if you look at verse 7, he calls the twelve, he sends them out two by two, gives them authority over the unclean spirits. And now down to verse 30, the other half of the sandwich, the other piece of the bread, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all they had done and taught. The question we need to ask is why why is this story about John's death in between those two? What's going on with that? Well, the the bottom line is that John wants us, or Mark wants us to understand that sharing Jesus' mission includes sharing Jesus' sufferings. Jesus not only sends us with authority and ministry, but with a call to suffer. Paul wrote to Timothy, Don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, but share in suffering for the gospel. Timothy, share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Now, this is countercultural. And at first it seems rather unpleasant. But, the, but, but what he's declaring is that the kingdom advances in the midst of rejection and even the death of God's choice servants. It reminds us that our mission takes place in hostile 
territory. And if you want to be reminded about that, you need no long, look no further than the 21 Coptic Christians who just last week, having left their home in Egypt to go to make money for their families, to provide for their families, were arrested and were forced to kneel down and their throats were cut. And what was declared over them is you are being killed for the cross. You're being killed for your Christian faith. We, we live in a dark time. We live in a time where, where Satan's hold has at least externally increased. And it would seem that that will be more the rule than the exception. But the odd thing is that the gospel actually grows, explodes in times like that. God uses martyrs to make his name known. God uses the death of his people as a declaration of the power of his word. And so we have this story. The story that reminds us that our mission takes place in hostile territory. That it's not always going to be easy for us as we go forth. It's a call to count the cost, which is actually what we should do before we become a Christian. It's a call to count the cost. That our life be of no value to us compared to the glory of God. It's a story of Herod, Herod Anibus, the, the son of Herod the Great who, was, who killed the baby seeking to kill Jesus at his birth. And there are a number of, of, of ideas that are floating around about who this Jesus is. There, some are saying he's John the Baptist raised from the dead. Others that he's Elijah from Malachi 4. He's the one that's come to restore the hearts of children to their fathers. Others just say, well, I, I don't know. He's, he's a prophet. But Herod says, oh, I know who he is. He's John the Baptist, whom I beheaded, raised from the dead. Then, then he, he transitions to the backstory. This, this is what happened. He's saying, this is what occurred. Herod is, was married to his brother Philip's wife. He married her and Herod was declared by John to be wicked, to be wrong, to be, to, to be sinful by marrying his brother's wife. And Herod, when he heard that, didn't despise John so much as he respected him. He was perplexed. And it says he heard him gladly. In other words, Herod, Herod respected this man who would be willing to say what was true even at the cost of his life. And so he tried to protect John. He arrested him and put him in, in jail to keep him safe because his wife Herodias despised John. Herodias was seeking to kill John and Herod as the really cowardly henpecked king is is keeping him in prison to protect him from his wife. But all that came apart when Herod threw a birthday party. Threw a party for himself. He invited the nobles, military commanders, leading men of Galilee to come. And at that party, Herodias sent her teenage daughter Salome to dance. So it just gives you some perspective of the kind of character Herodias has. She takes her teenage daughter and sends her to do an erotic dance in front of all these men. 
And Herod, probably thoroughly intoxicated, declares to Salome, I will give you anything you ask up to half of my kingdom. That is the opportunity that Herodias was waiting for. And she tells Salome, ask for John the Baptist's head on a platter. And so Herod's got a choice to make. Is he going to lose face in front of all of these these leading men or is he going to have John killed? And of course, he has John killed. And so we see that John's life is given for the gospel. And it's interesting that if we take an eternal perspective that, well, let's face it, no one names their son Herod. But there are a lot of people, millions of boys named for John the Baptist. Throughout history, the message of John and other martyrs rings loud and clear for the gospel. And so there, there is application here for us. If you're, if you're not a follower of Christ, if you're not a follower of Christ, this passage reveals something of your place in salvation history. If you're not a follower of Christ, you might not recognize yourself as a ruthless leader or a conniving queen. But if you've not submitted to Jesus, you're not in a neutral position with God. If you haven't turned from your sins and trusted in the Savior, you stand opposed to God, just like Herod, just like Herodias. Because thus far you have rejected him as king of your life. If you haven't submitted to him and turned from your own sin, you have made yourself the king. You've denied or ignored your need for what only he can give. Because the truth is that Jesus came for people just like us. We were all born in need of a Savior. And you can turn today. You can turn from being on Herod's side to being on Jesus' side. You can turn from your sin. Repent. Turn away from your sin, from being the center of your own life. And trust in the Savior. And your conflict will be over. Repent and believe. If you are a Christian, this, sober, this story is sobering news. Jesus has called us to participate in his mission, to share his authority and to share his ministry, but also to share his suffering. It means that we should not be surprised when we suffer. We should not be surprised when God calls us to danger Or when God calls us to take a stand at work for truth and that costs us a promotion. Or when God calls us to take a stand among friends for what is right and that costs us friendship or earns us ridicule. God calls us to walk a path that isn't always an easy path. But it's a path that testifies to his glory in our lives. So when you are despised, don't hang your head. You're not a victim. When you are rejected, Jesus said, if they hated me, they'll hate you also. This story also points to the heart of our message. John's death foreshadows Jesus' death. Both John and Jesus were executed by tyrants, put to death by a reluctant leader who knew their innocence. Both John and Jesus were killed by one who capitulates to others. Both John and Jesus died innocently and righteously. But John died as a faithful witness. Jesus died as a faithful substitute. He died for us to take our sin, to take the holy wrath of God against us as sinners, to reconcile us to God. Every one of us is offensive to a holy God apart from a Savior. He died to conquer Satan and break his grip on humanity. And to rectify all 
that sin destroyed so that we are forever and completely forgiven with a joyous mission to a world opposed by him. That's why at Kingsway we are a people who exist to help one another enjoy a growing relationship with God by treasuring Jesus Christ, pursuing authentic community, and loving our neighbors. It is at great personal cost that we will fulfill our mission. It will not be done in the comfort of our homes. And whatever rejection we suffer, may it be for his honor and glory. The triumph of our mission is guaranteed because it has been purchased by Christ, promised by Christ, who pledges to be with us even to the end of the age. We just sang a few minutes ago, O Father, use my ransom life in any way you choose. And so let me ask you, did you mean those words? Are you willing for God to use your ransom life in any way he chooses? Do you believe that God has given you a mission to participate in? He's given you his authority. He's given you his ministry. But he's also called you to serve in his suffering. Are you willing to do that? We're going to sing a song right now that, that is something of a prayer. I want you to listen to these words as a prayer. I want you to consider the cost. Count the cost. In a few minutes we're going to share communion as an expression of our recognition that Christ died for us so that we can live for him. This song will prepare our hearts to do that. So I want you to listen with me and soberly assess your commitment to serve the Savior, to to use our ransom life in any way he chooses.